Hi, I'm Nathan Ryder, and welcome to the Viber Survivors podcast, where I talk to PhD graduates about their research, their Viber, and life after the PhD. This is episode 26, and today I'm talking to Dr. George Julian, PhD graduate from Cardiff University, whose PhD is in the area of psychology of special education. As well as talking to George about her PhD in Viber, we also talk about Viber cards, a product that she's made to help people prepare for their Viber. Can we start off by hearing a little bit about your PhD research and how you came to do it? Sure. Um, my PhD was in the area of psychology of special education. Um, I studied at Cardiff at the School of Social Sciences. And I looked at pretty much the curriculum and provision um, for pupils in school with profound and multiple learning disabilities. So it was a comparative study that looked at England, Wales and Ireland, and it pretty much looked at what kids were taught and where they were taught and how the curriculum was developed in schools for profoundly disabled children. Uh, and how did you how did you come to do that? Was this something you'd always had an interest in or was it a topic that you came to when you started your PhD? Um, so I'd always had an interest in special ed. I wanted to be a special ed teacher when I grew up, but the government decided to stop teach specialist teacher training as an undergrad degree the year before I went. So I couldn't train as a special ed teacher. So I did an education degree. Um, But it was a BA in education, which really is bizarre because it doesn't prepare you for teach, but it does prepare you in psychology of special ed and education. So I did my undergraduate dissertation um, looking at special ed, and I did some work in my third year in the summer of my second into third year Um, some paid work doing some research work and I fell in love with research as opposed to necessarily this particular topic Um, but when I came to finish my degree um, a lot of I didn't really know what I wanted to do but I knew I didn't want to teach I knew I didn't want to go into teacher training and I knew I didn't really want to go back and work in Sainsbury's so it seemed like a good idea to apply for research funding Um, and then when I got it it seemed obvious I would take it and I did. Can you tell us a little bit about how you did your research? Did it involve, um, was it literature based or were you going to schools and seeing firsthand what provision was like? What what, what did you do? Um, yeah, so I often joke that it could have been a um, ethnographic study of Irish landladies um, of B&Bs because I did a lot of travelling. Um, I did a... Uh, To be honest, I did far too much research in my PhD. Um, I had a national census of Irish special education and a survey in England and Wales. I visited 14 schools altogether and spent a week in each. I interviewed head teachers and teachers and special needs support assistants. I observed, did structured observations in lessons to see if these kids were really engaged and what they were engaged in. And I did a documentary analysis of all their paperwork um, and a literature review as well. So there's far too much data. <laughs> when you say far too much data, did you? Uh, I'm sort of imagining filing cabinets and uh, the is it that? the summer I wrote up? Um, I wrote up the summer after I finished. Um, I was on, I was funded for three years, so I had a year then to write up. Um, but I was working by then, and I 
had the staff room where I was working and I kid you not I had a massive great big long trestle table the staff room table covered in paper and flip charts all over the walls and I lived in there for about probably two months um I had way too much data and the one thing that I kind of felt a bit uh, a little bit cheated by was when I finished my supervisor said to me oh I was involved with a massive funded study doing this a number of years ago which of course I'd known um, and we probably had about the same amount of data but there was a team of five of us <laughs> I just thought, oh great thank you very much <laughs> okay, where was... it was ambitious <laughs> yeah so what were the um, what were the results like of this then um well it, it was quite interesting um, in that what we pretty much found was that it didn't really matter uh, geographically or location wise where these kids were educated. So it didn't matter if they were in a special school or in a specialist unit attached to a mainstream school or in a mainstream school with a support assistant. What really mattered was the quality of interaction they had. So that was kind of that flew in the face of a lot of the inclusion advocates at the time, because this was at the time when everybody was saying that all kids should be in mainstream education. Nobody should be separate. Um, and it's not that that, you know, moralistically, you could think that. But in terms of the difference it made to their education, it didn't really matter where they were educated, um, albeit only in these 14 schools. Um, and we found that uh, quite difference, quite a lot of differences between England and Wales and Ireland. In, in how curriculum was developed, but they'd only be, these kids had only been in education in Ireland for about two years when I started. It was very new, new over there. Um, and we developed a model looking at the different factors um, that influence curriculum development and what you needed to be aware of. Um, and we found out that pretty much a lot of the children were more engaged um, in England and Wales, but that was due to teaching styles. And in Ireland, they were often six or seven, um, so they have better pupil-teacher ratios, six or seven kids in a classroom, but a lot of one-to-one um, -one work, which meant a lot of time was just spent being not engaged. But it was, I mean, it was interesting, and actually somebody contacted me this week about it, um, and I haven't looked at it in years, because this was, um, I finished in 2002, so that's how long ago it was, and it was actually interesting going back and looking at it and thinking, yeah, a lot of this stuff's still current, so yeah. Wow, that's awesome. Um, <laughs> the power so of Twitter. <laughs> yeah yeah um so you mentioned that was 2002 then so was that when you uh had your viva or i think you said you wrote up the summer afterwards so was it 2002 or 2003 that you finished so i finished um i the money ran out um in the summer of 2001 um i then got a job um i I submitted in I had you had to submit by the end of September and I submitted on the final day of September 2002 but well, I didn't have my Viva till January 2003 so it was actually um it felt like a lifetime away it was four months later which isn't that long but it felt like a long time yeah sure so what what were you doing for those four months then uh, obviously you mentioned you had a job but yeah surely yeah I was um so I finished um my PhD and I was really um lucky um because i got a lecturing job straight away um so i was working as a special ed lecturer over in dublin um in st pat's college in um drum Condra. so i was working full-time as a lecturer as i was writing up um which was a bit of a baptism of fire <laughs> um but it was good because we had a summer holiday which meant i had no summer holiday but did manage to write up um so yeah that's what i was doing and I was working full-time and obviously it was my first proper job um and my first time as a lecturer so that was quite a 
intense experience um didn't really even think about my phd after it was submitted up until probably until the january when the viva was just ignored it for a bit yeah <laughs> so so when that when the uh, when viva day started to to come around what sort of things were you doing to prepare <laughs> uh, i'd like to pretend that i was very organized and very structured and very disciplined um but I pretty much put it out of my mind for as long as possible. And then when it came to the Christmas, I realized that this was actually only a matter of four four weeks away. Um, so I reread my um, PhD numerous times. I mean, I had a soft bound copy. I absolutely covered it in post-it notes. Um, every page practically had a summary post-it note. Um, and I... All I really did, I didn't know how to prepare for a viva, so all I really did was read it an awful lot, um, add in a few thoughts about what could have been done differently or what we felt afterwards in hindsight wasn't the right thing to do. Um, and just I prepared notes, I suppose, but I never really, never really did an awful lot of structured preparation. I just read it um, and hoped. <laughs> so did you did you have anything like a mock viva before the real viva? Or were you just so busy with your with your well with your job? Well, it's yeah. I to be honest with you, I think I probably did, but I can't remember it. Um, and at this time, I was living and working in Ireland, and my um, PhD supervisors were in. Well, one of them was in Cardiff, and one of them was in Dublin, actually, as well. Okay. Um, so I remember discussing it with them, and I remember having a supervision um, on the phone where I think they ran through the sorts of things, but it was all quite um, general. I, I can't say I remember it a particularly useful mock viva, although I'm sure that could have as much been about where my head was as what they were capable of doing. Um, yeah. In my first year of my PhD, um, it was spent full time doing a research methods diploma. Um, it was before the three plus one, so it was part of the first year. And I remember that we had a mock viva as part of that. And I remember watching, um, you know, going into the lecture hall and watching it. But to be honest, it was just amusing because there were these, you know, eminent kind of people from our department play acting at being PhD students. So, like, again, when I look back at it now, but this was like 13, 14 years ago. All I can remember was how amused we were by it. As yeah, opposed to sure. being useful at all. <laughs> so yeah, I'm not I'm not sure about the mock viva thing. I'm sure it could be useful, and I'm sure for some people it it certainly would be. But I don't know that it did me much good. <laughs> okay, but it could just be me. <laughs> and did you get much other sort of uh, advice or uh, you know general things that people told you in advance of the viva? No, I mean I, I've blogged about this before. I um I was the first person in my family to go to university, so I didn't even know other people with degrees never mind with PhDs I didn't know anybody who'd sat a viva um I didn't have much of a concept of it but I do remember and this is what I've blogged about I do remember walking down the corridor to go to my viva and walking past um someone who worked in the department and her merrily saying oh it's your viva today isn't it make sure you enjoy it and me thinking she's absolutely mad <laughs> ever enjoy your viva i mean it just it, it i couldn't i couldn't comprehend the point she was making and actually in hindsight and this is why i've blogged about it i think it's a really valid point if i'd prepped differently and had anticipated it differently you almost could enjoy it and i almost did enjoy it but i have no concept walking in of the of the benefits of it really it was it was all a very mysterious um well it it felt like a job interview slash exam combined. Um, whereas now, when I talk to people about their prep for Viva, I always point out that 
you know, this is the, one of the few occasions in your life where you will meet people who have read your work. It's one of the few, probably the only occasion you'll meet people who've read your thesis from start to finish. And you yeah. know it better than they possibly could because you've done the work. And actually, I think if you can prepare yourself, um, if you can prepare yourself and get yourself to a point where you remember that, I can see that it would be enjoyable. Um, but I certainly couldn't comprehend that at the time. I thought she was completely barking. Yeah, I know. It's a, it's a funny thing when I when I do driver workshops, um, you know, saying t- telling people exactly the same thing you mentioned there about you know this is maybe the first and last time that you'll meet somebody other than your supervisor who's who's really interested in your whole thesis. Uh, and people just this little light bulb goes on like, oh, yeah, but this this might be the only time. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's it. And I mean, I think um, as no doubt we'll discuss, I think you and I are probably in a similar place in this. I think there is something of the mystique of it that I think it's almost it's almost a bit like I don't know. It's a bit like like anything in life where someone says, oh, well, back in my day. And there's almost like this kind of wish for it to be this hard um, rite of passage as opposed to demystifying it. You know, I don't remember anybody really talking about the benefits of it or actually about how routine it could be and how best to prepare yourself for it when really it's a great opportunity. But I think, you know, there aren't there still aren't that many people trying to obviously this is one example, but there aren't that many people who try to dispel the myths. I think I think there's a little bit of, oh, well, it was hard in my day, so it can be hard for the next person sort of thing. Let's talk about your Viva then. So how did it start off? What was it like? Well, uh, I got <laughs> I, I can just remember walking down the corridor and being told to enjoy it and thinking that was ridiculous. And I can remember walking in and it was room um, and there was the chair, uh, the two examiners and both my supervisors. And the bizarrest thing was the fact that they were the people who had guided me, but had also been, you know, my lecturers as an undergrad. I did my undergrad at Cardiff as well. So these have been the people I'd admired for years and they were sat there and they weren't allowed to talk, which was a bizarre dynamic. And <laughs> um, so that was the bit I remember the most as to how odd that was, but also how um, once I kind of worked through my initial nerves how genuinely um how good it was to have a discussion with someone about the stuff I'd done and to have somebody else reassure me about some of the points that I'd felt and argued with my supervisors about (laughs) like there's far too much data here um so it was it was quite good to have an independent perspective I suppose um but the actual walking in there I can just it was it was like this cross between a job interview and an exam and it was very peculiar um, but it was also in a, um, a new building, which I hadn't really spent much time in because I'd moved on a year previously. Um, so that kind of threw me a little bit as well. Were you asked to give any kind of presentation at the start? No, uh, nothing. Like that. No. I mean, I know that's okay. become much more common now. And I think I'd, I would have almost liked to because I think it would have calmed my nerves and reminded me of what I knew. Um, but no, we were straight into the flicking through it and discussing. OK. And so was that... Um... Did that kind of format of them, uh, you know, just proceeding through the the thesis and and picking things out, was that more or less how it ran or? Yeah, no, I mean, that. uh, well, and again, you know, like I said, it's 11 years ago, so I'm I'm a bit hazy on the detail. But from what I remember, it became quite quickly, uh, um, you know, there were some general questions about tell us why you picked this area and how did you find it? You know, more kind of, I guess, to ease your nerves. And then it was straight into the. Well, you say this and you say that and flicking around. And I have to say, having a, uh, having a massively annotated copy really helped at that point because it just helped you kind of locate your thinking as soon as you hit a page as, a, as opposed to have to kind of scan it and figure out what are they talking about. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Can I ask a, a question? I, I've not asked this before, but it's something that, that comes up when I, when I talk to people. Did your examiners make any comment about the fact that your thesis was annotated? Because I've spoken to some people and they're worried that when they go to their Viva, if they, if they have an annotated copy, their examiners might think, well, that something was wrong or that it was a bad thing. Did, did you have any experience of that at all? Not at all. I mean, if anything, they were, um, I can remember one joke being made about, towards the end about, well, of course you'll have a note about that. Because <laughs> it did feel right. a little bit like that. Like every question they asked me, I'd kind of thought, oh, you know, I don't think I was really caught on the hoof an awful lot. Um, so it, were, it certainly wasn't frowned upon. Um, and in fact, I think it became useful because, again, if you think about it as a conversation about your work, if you've well, if, as you prepare for any meeting, if you do, if you do prep to try to get your head straight and figure out, well, why did we suggest that and why did we do that? I think, um, I, I mean, I'd highly recommend it. I, I check, obviously, check with your university to check you're allowed, but I've never heard of anybody not being um, allowed to have an annotated copy because, and this comes back to the point we were saying earlier, it's not a test of memory and it's not an exam in the truest sense. It's your chance to share your work, so do what you can to prepare for that. I'd suggest. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I thought it was just worth making that little diversion yeah. then because, as I say, I've, I've just been asked the question a couple of times because I advocate annotating your thesis and and, and using it to, in, in several ways. But again, some people, I think, get advice that it, it's not a good thing to do, but um, I'm glad that somebody else has had a good experience with it. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think I think the other thing is, this is back to the, the kind of mystery around this stuff. Um there isn't hard and fast rules so I the one thing I was the one rule I definitely definitely broke in my PhD is I was told categorically that my acknowledgements couldn't go over one page and I thought well screw that I've spent four years of my life doing this I'll have two pages thanks and <laughs> that was the only rule I actually remember breaking um, but there aren't you know it's not that hard or fast that's the other thing and, and most of your external examiners won't be that familiar with your university's rules anyway because they come from a different place so I think I'd well I'd definitely definitely recommend it and if you're worried then check with you know check with yeah. your own supervisors I suppose. Uh, were there any parts of the Viva that were stressful? <laughs> All of it. <laughs> All of, um, okay. I, I think I guess the in a way the most stressful bit was not knowing what I was walking into. Um, I did relax into it. I'm quite an extrovert person anybody anyway. I, I, quite like talking um and I, I liked the fact that we were discussing work that I'd agonized over um I found I wouldn't say anything in particular was stressful there was one question about one statistical technique which I kind of was just a bit stumped by and had to take a minute to think about and I can remember having to say to them oh can I just have a minute to think about that um and feeling a little bit awkward that I almost asked permission to do that but I guess that's the other thing it's not a rush it's not a race um so I don't, I mean, I do just feel like the, I was petrified by the whole thing because I like to prepare and I didn't know what I was preparing for. Um, but the actual thing itself, probably the most nerve wracking bit was leaving the room and waiting, <laughs> waiting to find out if you'd passed or not. Um, that was awful. Um, yeah. How long, how long did you have to wait? Not that long at all. Actually, it was about um, it was literally about just over 10 minutes so I went back to the waiting room and started making a cup of tea and the chair came back and told me and actually he was really naughty he said to me I'm not meant to tell you this but um congratulations he was this gorgeous retired um Welsh professor and he, he just said congratulations you've done amazing <laughs> I was like oh 
Um, so then I had to fake not knowing when I went back in, which was actually quite stressful. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I mean, it was the whole thing was stressful. And yet when I look back at it, it was also perversely enjoyable. Oh, one question I don't think I've asked is, is how long was your viva? remember again i can't i think it was about an hour and a half two hours um i mean i've heard of some horrendous ones that have taken much longer and i've heard of some over in half an hour but from memory it was a it was around about the two two hour mark in terms of but i think that included finding out if you know what i mean i think it was okay it was afternoon um and i'd flown in that morning um which was a little bit brave as well or foolish and i remember it being about two hours altogether i think okay Cool. Well, that, that, that does sound like it was a positive experience overall. Maybe that um, person you passed in the hallway was right. <laughs> well, I often say, you know, I have to kind of eat humble pie on that one because I can remember just thinking that she was absolutely nuts. But but in a way, I also felt a bit like this, that with a little bit more help, I could have really appreciated that and I could have got a lot more out of the, uh, of the experience, actually. Sure. Sure. OK, um, so that was early 2003. Um, it might take a long time to to go over the next 10 years. <laughs> but um, so but did you stay in, in higher education or have you moved into different areas since then? So um, what did I do? I went back and I worked as a lecturer Um I carried on working um, as a lecturer for about I did a four year contract um, and did a bit of research as well within that. But felt I always I felt like I was playing at being a grown-up but I now realize you know 12 years later that you still feel like that but at the, t- at the time I was convinced that this was just me I was very young and um, I was only uh, 24 and I was English and I was working in an Irish teacher training college and I wasn't a teacher um so it was a hard gig um but I loved it really enjoyed it um but decided that it wasn't wasn't for me um and I wanted to come back to the UK so I went to work for the stats office um which was uh, a brief um a brief experience with the civil service of about 15 months i just couldn't stand the bureaucracy and the signing off of everything and the delays um and then i got a job which i absolutely loved and i did for um about 7 years where i worked for an organisation that was focused on getting research used in practice um so we worked with uh, social workers and social care professionals in local authorities so I didn't really know anything about social care, but I knew a lot about research and had lots of strong ideas about why it wasn't used and how we could make it more accessible. And then about uh, 18 months ago now, I um, quit my job. I didn't know what I was going to do instead, but knew that I needed to do something different and took a couple months off and then started working as a freelancer. And I now work as a freelance knowledge transfer consultant which means I work with, I'm a visiting fellow at LSE as well, um, and I work with universities and researchers to get their work used um, and out into practice. And I work with uh, some government kind of sector-led improvement organisations to get them to use research and engage and, um, you know, work with people differently, doing a little bit around social media and stuff like that. So that's my 12 years in two minutes. And do you think uh, do you think twelve years ago coming out of your viva you could have envisaged that? Not at all. I mean, it, <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? I think at the time I was so I'd put so much into my PhD I couldn't ever imagine not being an academic because it took so much of you, and it was kind of frowned upon the notion that you would leave academia. It's kind of people people who left were viewed as a bit weak, I suppose, or a bit 
and you know didn't have the stamina and I think for me it was really hard it was really hard to give up that job I was told quite clearly that I wouldn't you know that you'd never become an academic again if you if you stepped off the career path that was it and I kind of felt like well why would you give up you put so much into doing a PhD why would you possibly want to give that up and so I never would have thought I'd be doing what I'm doing now but I wish and this is another one of my little um, bugbears I wish there were more alternative kind of futures offered to people who do PhDs because it's been brilliant preparation for so much of my life but I don't think I don't think if I knew now what I knew if I'd known then what I know now I think I would have made much more confident decisions much earlier actually um but it's, it was great preparation and, and it is, you know, to this day, I'm glad I did it. Um, yeah, it was good. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think I know what you mean. I um, I had no idea at the start of mine that I, I don't think I was thinking of staying in academia at the start of my PhD. But at the same time, I don't think I knew what else I would do. And the... Because I do a lot of, obviously I do a lot of stuff in universities, I guess, like, like you and you, I, I see people give talks and, and start things off by saying, you know, half of you, half of you want to stay in academia, but maybe 10% of you will. Yeah. Um. But then they don't really capitalize or, or think on or deliver something and, and say, well, actually, so here's what the other 90% of you could do, or here's what you could yeah. Here are things that you could do during your PhD to really make you feel that it you've got something to do or something to offer after that. Well, that's it, and I think you know I think it's foolish in a way because and that was why people were shocked that I would give up a job that was so you know so hard to come by and why would you possibly give that up? But I don't think we have many alternative narratives in academia or in life in general. In, it was the same when I gave up my job. Everyone was like, why would you give up a job? You've got a mortgage. <laughs> what are you going to do? And I was like, I don't know, but I'll figure it out. And I think, yeah. I, I just don't, don't know there are that many role models for people who do it differently. And I think, I personally think that universities are missing a trick because, you know, a, a PhD is great preparation for loads of different things in life. You get loads of transferable skills. It's, you know, I always say the research methods diploma, which I hated doing because I just wanted to get on and do my research, was one of the most useful pieces of paper I have. And it's it's a good it's a good exercise in stamina. <laughs> and yeah. I think it's a, it's a good exercise in commitment. And I look back now, people often say, oh, you know, are you glad you bothered? Are you glad you've got a PhD? And I it's a real difficult question because. If I was now faced with some of the costs and challenges that people face, I don't know that I would have even gone to university, never mind on a PhD. But I look at it now and I think the thing it gave me the most was a confidence in my belief, myself, in my own, you know, a self-belief, the, the fact that I can do this. And I spent, you know, four years of my life working this hard at something means that even though I'm not a natural start to finisher and even though I'm more of an ideas person, I know if I put my mind to it, I can complete things and I can do good stuff and I can make it useful so I think you know if, if you're one of those 90% you know listening who isn't going to get a job in academia I'd embrace it I'd, I think there's some brilliant opportunities available just about you know carving them and finding them yeah yeah uh, speaking of uh, having ideas and seeing them through and creating something useful <laughs> I think that's uh, probably a good cue to talk about Viva cards um so I've actually got my set uh, in front of me here. Mm -hmm. uh, can, so can you tell us a bit about Viva cards and, and where they came from and, and how they're here, sure. I suppose? 
Sure. So um, as we've just been discussing, I didn't feel personally particularly well prepared for my viva, albeit that it wasn't as traumatic an experience as it could have been. Um, and what happened after my viva, I was one of the first of the people who I studied with to do my viva. Um, and since then, a number of my friends, family, colleagues have sat vivas and I ended up kind of just feeling a bit responsible, really, having done one and feeling like I could have done better in terms of helping people prepare for theirs. So a couple of years ago, I started writing like almost like flashcards, I suppose, like you'd use with kids um, of the questions, the sorts of questions that you'd be asked in a Viva. And I'd make this little set and I'd tie it with a ribbon and I'd give it to someone a couple of months before their Viva um, as preparation. And then on a couple of occasions, I'd go to the pub with them, you know, a week or two before their exam and we'd sit and we'd go through these questions. And everyone loved them and people started giving them on to their friends. And I kept thinking, this is weird. Um, and then somebody challenged uh, or challenged asked really why they hadn't been published. Um, you know, why weren't these more widely available? And in terms of starting finishing, I am a star finisher, but these took years in fruition. Um, and it was about last last September time, last Christmas time, um, when I suddenly just thought, well, we've got to do this because I think it's a good idea. I've had enough people telling me it is a good idea. So let's put it out there and see what happens. Um, so Viva cards are just a set of um, their business card size. They're not flashcard size anymore, but just a set of all the sorts of different questions you're likely to get asked at a Viva with the intention that people can just use them to prep, really, to have some idea of the sorts of to demystify it and have some idea of the sorts of questions that you might be asked. Um, and we launched the website in February, I think it was. Um, January or February time so a couple months ago and um, they've been a huge success so far um, so yeah that's where they came from anyway cool uh, I've seen um, like lots of uh, I've seen like tweets and um, and little reviews about them and and so I was prompted to pick up a set really and and they're just great you know I there's something really good because uh, people have said this about the the podcast and and other things that I've mentioned before that, you know, well, there's information, you know, there's, you can go and Google it or you can do this or that, but there is something wonderful about having something there in front of you. And they're something that you can, like, I've just you know, cut the deck as it were. <laughs> and it's come to, uh, if you could start again, what would you do the same way? And, you know, you cut the deck again and what are the motivations for your research? I'll stop there because I don't want to give too many of them away. <laughs> but, uh, but, it's great to have something tactile there. And you know, when I got them and I sort of laid them out, you can just think of so many different ways that you could use them. You know, you, you could use them as a kind of, you know, every day you just take, one of my friends suggested this actually, every day you could just t pick up one card and, and put it in your purse, put it in your wallet. Yeah. And just carry it around with you. And that would be, every time you open your wallet, you're just prompted to think, you know, what what were the motivations for my research? Um, there's, so, there, there's something wonderful about having a physical little thing to take around with you to help you prepare. Well, that's it's interesting to say that because what we originally did, so we'd have the kind of record card version and then we had an app that was um, developed up. But the person that used it said what I really want was business. That's what she said. I really want business cards. I really want something I can take with me. I want it to be you know, throw it in my handbag and get it out when I'm stuck on a train or sat on the bus. Um, so that's why we went with the tangible and they're 
um, you know, they're 25 quid, so they're not the cheapest on the market <laughs> by a long shot. You know, we realise that that's expensive, but we wanted it to be good quality. They're made by Moo um, at the moment. And so they're, there's a nice, um, they're well made. And I should um, give credit to Ferg, who's the information designer that worked with me, because the design, I think, is what adds to it as well. You know, it's a nice little package and it, it, it does, it does it's the portability that people like and the tangibility and the fact, you know, we've had photos of people who've got them all up in their walls on their pin boards, had people who've said that they, um, the advice that we've had is to change the colours and we're actually looking at doing that for the next print run um, so that people could just, you know, if you were on a long drive with someone, they could say, right, well, give us a red card or give us a green card sort of thing. Um, yeah. And the thing that I wasn't anticipating at all, but that lots of people have said is really useful, is that they're a brilliant tool if you're not studying a PhD to be able to use with a partner or a friend who is so it kind of allows people to um, take on a role I suppose and help someone prepare in a way that I hadn't really anticipated hadn't thought of that but that seems to be quite popular as well so yeah it's simple I mean it, that you know to be honest the questions are there you could probably find most of those questions elsewhere on the internet not claiming that they're it's hugely new but I think the innovation is in pulling them together and trying to use them to demystify and prepare for a viva um, yeah, and I think also the, the like we said, the, there's a real innovation there in that it's a it's a tangible thing. You know, it's not just a uh, a website or some well or you know just a, a document that someone's um, copied and pasted and, and printed out. This is it, it's really neat. It is just a really good idea. Thank you. <laughs> I also think that they could be quite useful because some of the questions they could be used outside of preparing for the vibe i see these these could be good for people um coming up to say like the end of a year if your university uh for your phd has some kind of annual review or skills progression yeah i think some of these questions could be really good in kind of getting people to think you know what have i done this year well that's yeah. that's the other thing that we found is that people who've brought them haven't necessarily been preparing for their viva some have been doing their exchange from an mphil onto a phd and obviously these are designed for use towards the end but it's a similar sort of questions and like you're saying the other feedback we had which again i wasn't anticipating was how useful it was for writing for people to kind of think about well what should we have covered in that you know almost working backwards instead of working from the end you know coming forward and saying well what what if i'm going to be asked about this what should i be including and someone was saying yeah. the other day that it's been a really useful kind of if they get frustrated, they get writer's block. They'll just open the pack and kind of think, well, OK, how would I answer that just to start the actual writing process, you know, and then kind of uh, use it to unblock their mind block. So it's been, you know, we've had loads of, to be honest, unanticipated feedback. It's been great. It's been fantastic. Cool. That, that's really, really good to hear. Um well, to finish us off then, uh, there's the two questions that I, I always ask at the end of mm -hmm. uh, each podcast. So the first one is, what advice would you give someone starting a PhD? I don't like giving advice because <laughs> I don't like receiving it very much. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I, guess, I guess the one thing I would say is probably only do a PhD in something that you yourself are desperately interested in. So don't do it because your supervisor's got a pot of money and you're desperate. Don't do it because somebody else thinks it's a good idea because it's such a, well, certainly for me, it felt like such a long four years. Um, it almost had to be a vocation. Um, I don't think it's about brains. I think it's about stamina. So I guess I would say 
if you're going to do one, make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. And when you start one, and I know everyone says this, but start writing early. And, and I think nowadays it's, it's totally different to my world. I don't think I ever would have managed to complete a PhD if Twitter was around. But given that it is, is <laughs> I would suggest using social media and get networking and get blogging and share your process and your learning and your findings as early as possible and get a, a genuine um, engaged audience for your end work so that you've got something to do usefully at the end of it. I think it's an amazing opportunity is what we can do now. And last question is, what advice would you give someone preparing for their Viva? <laughs> I'm tempted to say, enjoy it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think, um, and I'm also tempted to say, buy Viva cards, they'll really help. Um, but I guess the what I'd really say is to just remember that this is a conversation and you are the expert. So, you know, even if whatever you think you could do better, pretty much everything in life we could improve on. But remember that you've done the work and this is your chance to share what you've done. It's not a trick question. You know, people aren't trying to catch you out. They're wanting to understand what you've done. So I guess prepare as much as you can. Annotate your thesis, write notes, do whatever works for you. Um, I also was talking to somebody recently and we were discussing that sometimes it's it's very different to say your answers out loud to something than it is to write them down. So maybe take the time to actually, you know, talk to someone, talk to your cat, talk to your mum, partner, whoever, and actually say some of your answers out loud. Because sometimes when you say it for the first time, it feels a bit different. But prepare early. Um, and yeah, genuinely remember that you are the expert. You're as much as an expert as the, anybody else in that room, probably more so. You should be anyway. Yeah. Great. That's a brilliant place to finish, George. Thanks so much for joining me this afternoon. Thanks. It's been great to hear about your journey and also to hear a bit more about Viva Cards. Hey, thank you. That's all for episode 26. Many thanks to George for taking part today and to you for listening. If you'd like to know more about Viva Cards, then you can go to the website at www.vivacards.co.uk. If you've got any questions or comments about this or any episode, please feel free to comment either on the site, uh, tweet at Viva Survivors or to me at Dr. Ryder, or email podcast at viva-survivors.com. Email especially if you'd like to appear on a future episode. We're always looking for more people to take part and share their stories and experiences. Until next time, I'm Nathan Ryder, and thanks for listening.